the Wildlife Observer Network. Hit record. Hello and welcome to Birding Today. I'm here with George Armistead. And I'm Tony Crowsdale. So welcome back. This is the I forget what episode it is. This is the second one with George and I. Um I like to separate the interviews from the discussions. I think it flows better that way. So we might have had an interview in between. I forget. Um, but uh, yeah, welcome back. George, how are you doing and how are you dealing with COVID? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's, uh, you know, it's a tough time. Uh, I keep, People keep, you know, that seems to be the question now was how are, everyone's like, how are you doing? And it seems like there's always sort of a, a pregnant pause while we actually consider that. Um so yeah, I, f- I feel fortunate. My loved ones are good. You know, work is a challenge, but um, overall, I, I feel uh, I feel good. My loved ones are healthy, and got a new puppy and and a one year old cat to help. Uh, um, you know, there's some indoor wildlife here to watch. So so far, so good. How about you, man? Yeah, uh, personally, you know, my family, immediate family, is is fine. Um, my a really old friend of mine's mother died of COVID in a, in a, a nursing home, so that that's sad. And you know, uh, I knew her, I knew her mother so too. Yeah, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of sad. And um, but you know, I got a pregnant wife. Um, he's doing less than two, just shy of two months, and she's doing fine. The baby's fine. Um, you know, things are doing pretty good. But uh, I did something kind of interesting today. Yeah, what's that? I <laughs> got a master's degree. Really? <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if you knew. Um, did you know that I never finished my thesis five years know. ago? Five years ago, I walked and everything, and then never. The my committee was like, oh, if you want to publish, you get one more season, at, you know, one more field season. So I was like, okay. So I started getting more, you know, did more. And they were like, you don't have to do a full season; just get out, get some data, um, so you have at least two years of in your data set. I was like, all right. But then by the time that was before that, my field season finished. I literally had already walked, you know, um, and they're like, yeah, get some more data. I was like, oh, okay. And then I get my dream job working for, working for the, you know, what I'm doing now, Parks and Recreation. And, and um, so, I, and I kept putting it off. I get, you know, I kept, get, I got promoted. I got an adjunct position at Temple. I went to Australia for a month. I met my wife, got married, <laughs> got a house. Like all yeah. this stuff keeps happening. Um, and, and, uh, but there was a five-year limit to when you walk to when you have to defend your thesis so i got in under the wire <laughs> wow so that's I did, awesome, man congrats yeah, thank you i literally yeah i literally defended my thesis on zoom um at uh 11 o'clock yeah so and what was the what was the subject matter how in um invertebrate populations on native versus uh alien shrub species different oh, right yes yes now i remember that yes the idea well, is i'm kind of curious about how shrub foraging so uh, this is an interesting conversation we, we uh i don't think there is a person who is more familiar with the avifauna of philadelphia other than than you other than possibly keith although i don't think keith gets as many places as you do or we have a good friend for um national audubon uh keith Russell, who actually uh cited two of his papers um on the birds that was taken in my thesis nice uh, um but and the breeding bird survey, Matt Halley and I uh, organized it. I believe you took part in. I think so. Um, yes. So confirm this, but think about it. 
look at our in Philadelphia in our green spaces. We have Red Start, Great Crescent Flycatcher, Red Eyed Vireo, right? A number of insectivores in the canopy, right? Mm-hmm. Where's Hooded Warbler? Where's Kentucky Warbler? Where's Wet Eyed Vireo? Where are the, you know, eye level, you know, from forest floor to eight feet tall? Where are those? Yeah, all in, the understory yeah, specialists. Right? Like, where are they? Not and, here. And you can go to uh, Bell Plain and get them all. You can go to um, Ridley Creek and get them. You know, so why are they, why are they missing in Philly? And if you look at our um, tree canopy composition, it's still the majority of our canopies in our green spaces in Philadelphia are native species. The shrubs there are other than like some spice bush and occasional other shrub here or there. They're almost entirely amber honeysuckle, multiflora rose, mile a minute Japanese, pr- yeah, it's privet, uh, Japanese barberry. Uh, you know, winged euonymus, um, not native species. And so Doug Ptolemy, his, that book, uh, Breaking Nature Home, he talks about how plants that do not share an evolutionary history with, uh, with local insects can't support those insects, can't host them generally. There are some generalists that can do it, but, um, so he did a lot of work in his colleagues in trees, a little bit of shrubs, but they were kind of in a, in a, a study area rather than like in the field. So I was, I want to look at shrubs. Yeah. And what I found is consistent is that the, there's way more prey availability in native species compared with alien species. So it could be part of the reason there could also just be, um, yeah, it could be the deer browse is so extreme that. Yeah. I th- I'm going to say too. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's both, right. It's got to be, and I'm sure it's a combo. There's certainly like you. There's places you walk in the city and you can just see the browse line so clearly. There's so many deer, and then there's other places you walk around and you think, well, there's some understory here, but look at what it is. It's not. It's not the rich stuff that you know is. It's not the native stuff that's good for the native birds. Yeah, uh, and that that is a really great book by Doug Tallamy, the Bringing Nature Home. He's got uh, a new one. I got to get. I, uh, yeah. His work is fantastic at University of Delaware. He does fantastic work. Really inspired a lot of people I know that have yards. You know, being where I am, I don't have a yard, but if I did, I'd be trying to plant all the natives and and uh, you know, it's fun get get birds on your yard list that you might never might never see otherwise if uh, if you hadn't had some food there for them. Yeah, and and I do have a I, a bit of I have a. I consider our, <laughs> by Philadelphia standards, I have a good sized yard. Yeah. Uh, by um, and Greg, you we've established this. You've yet to be at my house, right? I have not yet. Yeah, although I I yeah obviously been all around it, but yeah. not actually to it. Yeah. So um, we have. So I pl- I put last year uh, Mike McGraw helped. Well, he mostly did it, but because Mike, <laughs> true McGraw fashion, um, I ordered a. A bunch of plants through his uh, ecological restoration firm, and then he pretty much doubled or tripled my order um, because he's an amazing friend. And yeah. he, he, we're trying to figure out when they would get delivered, and he realized 
<laughs> so he delivered them the day of my of my big um, barbecue, <laughs> which you were away for. Um, obviously, you're yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and so he and I'm like, well, I can't help you. I gotta cook all this meat. <laughs> you know? So like, because um, I did the thing where I didn't want to just cook the whole time. I I wanted to cook beforehand so I could enjoy the party, right? So right. So I had to cook, and so he, him, and with help from his two daughters, um, planted 300 plugs in my in my yard, taking up lawn space. So I have a a, a good a good meadow right now in the back, and then like you know. I'm hoping, you know, I mean, it's, it's small. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's, um, I I don't know, you know, maybe it's, uh, 20 by 10, something like that, you know, more bigger. I don't know. It's, it's, it's good size, but not, not crazy. And it's on a steep slope, but you know, you know, I'm sure I'll get some things feeding on seed heads when, you know, when things are big enough to have seed heads. And then on the other side, um, it's shadier. It's, I have a, there's like a walnut. And then a, 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 a big spruce, so it's kind of shady on that side, and it's like a bed of ivy. I'm, you know, I want to get rid of the ivy, but you know, you, baby steps here, right? And I planted, um, I don't know, yeah, a dozen or so native shrubs over there. So I got, um, well, it's shrubs and small trees. I got three pawpaws. I got two choke berries, um, a couple kinds of viburnums, you know, maple leaf viburnum. Um, Native um, Virginia rose, uh, native beauty berry. So you know a lot of uh, what I got a uh, native um, um, hazelnuts. So it's a uh, yeah. So it's gonna nice. be pretty cool. I love pawpaw. I think it's just fun to say pawpaw. Yeah. Like I got a pawpaw tree out back. Maybe I get some pawpaw fruits. Maybe you know, what do they make jelly out of it? Right. You know, I'm not. Sure. I, it's the most. I think you probably could, but the, I mean, the best way to eat a pawpaw is just eat it. It's absolutely delicious. The thing about pawpaw is that they're not very, um, shelf stable, I guess. I don't know what you call it. Or like they, they don't really, uh, they, they bruise really easily, so they can't really be transported. So they haven't really developed a commercial market for them because you can't really get them anywhere. So, but they're just right. delicious. Yeah, I see. It. it looks like people people do pawpaw pudding, pawpaw ice cream, pawpaw bread. Um, yeah, bread looks and pudding look like the popular things, but ice cream too. Yeah, people call them custard apple. Um, it's another name for them. It's different from the tropical pawpaw. Like in Australia, uh, hippies love to give you pawpaw um, ointments, right? And it's mm-hmm. a. Uh, it really looks a lot like the. Um, so, I don't know if it is, but the pawpaw in the tropics looks a lot like a cecropia. Um, okay. But this is a completely yeah. different, unrelated uh, plant. Right. These, the pawpaw here, the fruits look kind of like big peanuts, right? But they're green. Yeah, yeah. Like almost like a, a like a smooth, like pale green cucumber or something, you know? And yeah, they're right. cool. And again, it's one of the things where the fruit is so big, What what was eating it? And um, it might be one of the things where it's a, a holdover from megafauna that used to be here, right? Like giant sloths and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, like um, Osage orange, right? You know, mm. it's like what the hell eat, used to eat Osage orange, and and the other thing like um, are honey locusts, right? Um, that are covered in those huge spines. If you look, yeah. they're like wait, you know, they'll be spines like twenty feet high on the on the tree like yep even when we had elk here elk weren't reaching up that high 
you know? Yes, like, I remember. Yeah, I've seen this. You see that in the tropics, too. You see, like, these sort of vestigial spines and, and, like, sort of giant thorns that have kind of started to recede, but on the trunks of trees that, yeah, yeah. I, I know those are supposed to be from the, the days when they say there was giant ground sloths and, and, and other huge animals that were roaming around and would tr- try to climb up these trees for the fruit. Yeah. So that's a. Alrighty. Um, so I started reading the, um, the James Bond book. Um, it's fantastic. I love to yeah. see your father mentioned it several times. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty. Yeah, he interviewed a lot of good people. I'm with it. Yeah. Um, I. Um, I kind of want to dress when I get a little bit older and I can pull it off. I want to dress like Ian Fleming. <laughs> I'd like to go to that GoldenEye estate there yeah. in Jamaica that uh, where he lived. That place sound it looks pretty off the chain, like serious. I guess now it's like a resort. Um, sounds like a super high end resort. Yeah, but um, man, that place looks amazing. Crystal blue waters and everything. Have you birded Jamaica before? Yeah, I I went to Jamaica. Let's see, was it 1996? I think it was. Um, and I spent six weeks um, as a field tech uh, for a woman named Susan Koenig, who was studying the endangered endemic parrots there, the black-billed and yellow-billed parrots in the cockpit country there. Uh, and some of the hardest work. It was actually it was a volunteer field position. I had done a number of those at that point, and this was the last one I ever did. I decided I was like, I was like, this this is too hard. This work, this is serious work. Basically, I remember the first day I followed her um, through the field sites to see where all the nest sites were, and and my job basically was to climb up these nest trees and reach into the cavity and pull out the young parrots, the baby parrots, and weigh them after feedings. Um, monitor the nest, weigh the young, see how much they gained weight between feedings. That itself was hard enough work. But, you know, you, you'd end up sitting in like a camouflage cape kind of nestled into the ground and, you know, waiting uh, for, the par- for, the, for the parrots to come back to the nest. Every now and then I'd get dropped off at some remote nest site and, you know, pre-dawn and they'd pick you up post-dusk and Parrots wouldn't come all day, and at that point, you knew that they'd abandon the nest, so it mm-hmm. felt like kind of a waste of day. But there was tons of mosquitoes and ticks out there in the deep part of the cockpit country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the state of Trelawney, and um, and I remember the first day I followed around uh, Susan to the different sites, the different nest sites, getting to know them all. You know, so I'd be ready to go back and monitor them and do the work, and. By the end of the day, I'd bloodied both knees and both elbows, and I was my whole body was like teeming in little tiny ticks. Oh man! And I like sat down on the chair, and I was like, "My God!" And you know, she'd been there for months, and she was just tearing through the brush, and she knew every square inch of that place. And I was tripping and falling and in a mess. And I look, I get back, I'm like, "My gosh, that was tough." I sit down, I look at my arms, my forearms, and they're just like, there's like hundreds of little ticks. Oh man! just you know all over me and so and we we were at a field station in the middle of nowhere no running water no electricity and the nearest body of water was one where there was like a cow inside of it in this like dirty muddy pond and i was 
I was like, okay, I guess, uh, I guess this is where I'm going to wash off these ticks. <laughs> Man. Uh, it was rough. It, it was, it was really enjoyable, you know, like being out in the field. I, it was really enjoyable. I got, you know, the, the quail dove there is what they call the mountain witch. Yeah. And it, uh, it's like such, it's, it's arguably the, the coolest quail dove of all the quail doves and quail doves are really hard to see generally. And this one is just kind of crazy. It kind of knocks around, you know, kind of teeter tottering around on the ground through the rocky substrate of the limestone forest there. And they can be really sneaky and hard to see. And it's, you know, it's kind of purple and, and blue and, and I feel like it's got some like magenta hues in it, if I remember right. But I just remember it's a stunning bird. And where I was, you know, being in that camouflage cape nestled into the forest there, I'd see one, it seemed like every other day, I'd have one just walk right by me. A lot of birders come and, and would struggle to see them, but I was I was in a good area for them. So I really loved the birding, but man, the work was tough. And after that, I was like, I'm not doing any more volunteer jobs. Yeah. That's That's it for me. But yeah, I never made it over over to GoldenEye, never made it to that part of the coast, would would love to go back to Jamaica sometime. And uh, they do have a bunch of cool birds, the yes. doctor bird, you know, the hummingbird, and it the has, Jamaican blackbird, a bunch of cool stuff. It has the most endemics of any of the Caribbean islands, right? Yeah, I believe that's right. You would think yeah. Cuba would, but apparently I think Cuba shares a lot with the Bahamas. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. That, um, yesterday, I interviewed for the network uh, uh, Robert Rockwell of the uh, CUNY in New York in the um, American Museum of Natural History. He was the PI. He's the guy that uh, set me up to the Arctic, and that wasn't um, a volunteer position. I granted, I everything was paid for. You know, my plane ticket and everything. You know, I paid a dime once I got on the plane. Once I got right. to the airport, um, but that was a really nice. He even talks about it. He's like, we, every you know, we have we always have dinner, and it starts with cock- cocktails, then dinner every night. Like, it, he like we have downtime. Like he, he really knew how to, um, m- you know, make us have a, enable us to have a really good time and relax, and so that we could you know we'd be better at the job. But also, it's like you're up there for two and a half months in the middle of nowhere, like, you, you know, or longer. Um, you need you need to be able to unwind. You need to be able to relax. You need to so, but it's you know, it's brutal. Field work is brutal. And then I went to Alaska after that, and uh, a couple of years later, and that was I worked for a young guy. Um, he was actually younger than me. He was getting his PhD, and he was terrible. He worked us like one day. I remember I got in a boat at like eight in the morning because you know it's up there. You don't have to get started early because there's no darkness right it's right. it's light all the time yeah. yeah so you know we get the boats at eight uh we ate lunch we pulled over the side and ate our sandwiches on on the bank uh dinner was granola bars and we didn't get back till two in the morning oh my gosh you know yeah i mean i i, I do i think you're like you're right. like field work is really tough it's just it seems the nature of the work you're outside you're often you know moving around a lot you're covering a lot of ground and the days are long, and very often you finish up the day and you don't, you, you know, you're not usually living in like a super glamorous place at all. Um, so it's like you got to love it. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I know we both have done a fair number of, of, of field jobs as techs and 
and I did a few as in as an intern. And yeah, it is tough work, man. It is tough work. I, I, I'm glad to have done it, but um, yeah, it's it's not easy stuff. There's that feeling, right? When as soon as like I'll never forget, like you know how crazy it felt when the snow machine dropped me off at, at our camp because um, it's like I don't know twenty miles or fifteen miles something away from the study center. And there's no roads. You can get there to the snow machine and drop me off. Drops us off. With a, with a sled full of, of provisions, and the tundra is so flat that the buildings are, are these are plywood camp buildings were the tallest thing for dozens of miles. So the snow was was just you know up to the eaves and all the so we had to dig tunnels, we dig like basically for light to get to the windows and to like dig steps. So it was like yeah. it almost was like we we're living a subterranean existence for the first right. like few weeks. Yeah, and the just, flat open areas you get the those drifts and next to any of the building, right, where the snow just builds up in like these massive walls. And I remember this being like, What the hell have I signed up for? And then I remember the same thing when the float plane drops me off in Alaska. And I'm like, I'm just gonna be there for three and a half months. You know? And I was like, What the hell did I sign myself up for? And then again, when you're done you're like, when am I going back? You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's such an adventure too. Yeah. It wasn't quite the same thing, but I, you're talking about living in wide open spaces like the tundra. The, uh, I spent a summer on the Pribilof islands in Alaska, uh, the Island of St. Paul, the town of St. Paul there. And, uh, which is, you know, little tiny, you know, it, it's little tiny speck of island smack in the middle of the Bering sea. A lot of bird guides, um, birding guides get their start there. A number of us have, and um, I'd never been. I'd, it was my first time in Alaska, and I remember getting on the plane. You take this like little skinny plane out there. It's like a three and a half, four hour flight, I think. And there's not even a restroom on the plane because uh, just that was the only airline that went out there. So you you know you don't drink any coffee before you get on there, but the the uh, the flight attendant was pretty funny. You know, she's used to dealing with all these kind of rough and tumble, rugged, you know, fishermen and, and guys from deadliest catch, you know, that are getting on and off the planes and doing the crabbing from the Island there. And so she sees me and I think she'd figured me, me for one of the fishermen. And she's like, you, this be your first time out on St. Paul Island. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, ah, yeah. You know, you know, you're going to love it. There's a good looking woman behind every tree. And of course, you know, there's not a tree on the island. It's all flat tundra. Yeah. It's <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a hell of an experience and, uh, it's just an incredible place. But yeah, the field jobs, you get to some amazing places, but it's not easy work. I interviewed for that job and I didn't get it. I got the, oh, is that right? I got the, uh, um, the gig in, uh, Minto Flats and said, which I'm really happy about hindsight because I'm sure I'll get myself to the Privilege someday. Um, yeah. but Minto Flats, it's like this like basin of bogs and sloughs and rivers that like they literally f- f- change direction, right? The, the the snow melt will make a flow one way, and then when that snow when that dies down, the flow the other way. It's like it's like wow. yeah, it's like really really weird. Um, and um, you know, it's not like a a place you go to see like you know. Specialties. In fact, I didn't get a life bird um, until I 
you know, the whole time I was there in the field camp, um, because I've been in, you know, the Canadian Arctic before and, um, you know, in Ontario, whatnot, but, um, it didn't matter. It was just such a cool, I mean, it's a duck factory, you know, and, and it did like wake up one day annoyed because 70, literally seven, zero, 70 common loons were all stacked up on the shore next to my tent just yodeling not the beautiful ethereal noise the annoying yodel just yodeling at each other and i'm like going up like shut up loons and i'm like dude you want you know like you want to see loons on the breeding ground your whole life and now you're you're mad at them you know yeah they won't shut up yeah yeah it was crazy i guess they you know i didn't know they did that i guess post breeding they all like link up together and hang out and party but um yeah but anyway so the privilege so the um the people there, um, could you pronounce the name of the people that live there? The, and yeah, the, it's, it's the largest community of Aleuts. So I learned how to pronounce that. I, I learned all about it. So when I interviewed, I, I was like, man, I'm a shoe in. I, cause you know, I had traveled to Asia before a couple times. So I knew my Asian birds pretty well, which is the likely source of the vagrants to the Privilofs. Um, I was yeah. a good birder. I had a, previous field experience in the Arctic, I, I was like, I should be a shoo-in. And the, the, when they called me, I was on a cell phone and the reception was bad. And I misheard how she pronounced, um, the, the, it was Aluit. Has it, was it Aluit? Uh, I can't remember now. How do you pronounce it? You usually you hear people say it. Aluit. Aluit. And yeah. I, I had, you know, I looked up videos I'd learned how to pronounce it. And I'm, and so I misheard her. I thought she was correcting me and it, it was a static while she pronounced it. So I changed the way I was saying it based upon how I thought she said it. And then she was like, <laughs> she's like, well, that's, you know, you're mispronouncing the name of my, uh, the name of my people. And you're, if you're going to work for us, you need to, to know how to pronounce it. And I was like, but I learned it and i thought you corrected me and i changed the way i you know what i mean i was like i'm saying it differently because i thought you corrected me you know what i mean like i was like i was saying it right so i didn't get it uh but so uh, yeah yeah well it sounds like you ended up in a good spot as it was and as you say the nice thing about saint paul is it's you know it's expensive to get to but but it's there, and, and um, it is a pretty magical place. Definitely recommend it if you want to see things like red-legged kittiwake and see horn, nesting horned puffins and big colonies of least auklets. Cool stuff out there. Yeah. What's the auklet smells like? Tangerines? Those are the crested auklets. Yeah, mm. they, have got, they got like a real citrus smell when you get around their nests. I'm not sure if they know why that is. The uh, if I'm trying to no, I guess I was I'm trying to remember what the genus is for that one. The I think the genus for uh, yeah, I guess they they eat I think like sand lance or like or uh, you know small fish mostly. I know that the parakeet auklets up there those they're called um, I think it's cyclorhynchus, which means like round bill. And, and they parakeet auklet you know does have this sort of round bill, and I think they actually specialize mostly in jellyfish. Um, so I don't know what. The, that makes their nest smell like, but hmm. I know but, a yeah. lot of them eat copepods really small. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now you say that, I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool place, man. Cool place. 
Uh, how you doing on um, what you've been keeping busy with? Yeah, you know, it's been work has been a challenge. You know, being in the travel business um, is really hard, and uh, it's tough seeing people getting furloughed or even losing jobs. Um, so, you know, we've been just trying to make our way through this um, situation, and it's it's not easy. Um, but yeah, I've done a little bit of birding, uh, not as much as I was doing a couple weeks ago, uh, when we talked last, but it is nice to see the migrants coming through, had a real nice day, I guess one day last week where I had like 14 warblers met up with, uh, BQ and, and, um, Patrick McGill and, and, uh, and Liam Hart. And we all, we saw like. We had a beautiful hooded warbler, um, you know, nice yellow-billed cuckoo, first veery of the season, um, you know, a whole bunch of first of the season, first of the year birds. And, uh, yeah, aside from that, I've I'm, I'm been spending time with my girlfriend. You know, she, you know she's, a, she's a nurse at one of the ICUs here, and so I spend some time with her when I can, and then we actually have to quarantine for a couple of weeks so I can go check in on my parents who are, you know, a little bit older. And, and uh, so I got to make sure that, you know, I'm not bringing anything to them when I go see them. But while I'm, my girlfriend uh, and I have a, have a three-and-a-half-month-old golden retriever and uh and also a one-year-old cat who seems very much like a kitten still she's actually asleep here next to me um had the girlfriend take the puppy out while we were talking because he can be it's basically like having a small bear roaming around mm-hmm. the house it's like i call him the frosty little bear cub um and based you know he's at that phase where he's like oh here's a uh Here's a basket of uh, knitting material. Maybe I'll try to eat these, you know, uh, these needles or, uh, you know, here's a power cord to chew on. Uh, you know, he's just he's roaming around. He's 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 kind of got command of his body for the first time uh, <laughs> recently. And he's really, you know, he's starting to test it out. But, um, yeah, so he, he they are he's endlessly entertaining, very, very naughty, absurdly cute. Uh, but certainly feel very thankful to be uh, able to spend time with a puppy at a time like this. Uh, yeah. Pets. I think the pets in our lives are, are the only ones that really are enjoying this quarantine, these stay-at-home orders. The pets are getting a good deal out of it. Oh, yeah. My, so. yeah, my cat, who's got um, you know heart disease and, and large thyroid, um, they basically, get, you know, over about a month ago, told us to basically expect to bring him in after the weekend and, and put him down. Um, but the cat is just seems to be responding to his medicine and he just keeps going and giving me no indication. You know, someone gave me a checklist of when, how to know maybe it's time to bring your cat in, you know, your pet in. Um, to And the cat, like if I didn't know we had a problem, I wouldn't know. So yeah. he's just been like, you know, playful, affectionate, while I was defending my thesis today on Zoom, he jumps in my lap. <laughs> and the funny nice. thing is, is, is my wife was watching me, right? So I, because you can have guests, you know. Um, normally, I would have been in a, in, you know, room at the university of watch people were there, so people could be guessing. So one minute the cat is like, 
in the picture with my wife on her lap, and then it's down down here with me. It's hilarious. <laughs> so I, I love this Jam- so I'm much. Like Shamu enjoyed your uh, your your defense uh, more than more than probably anybody else. Maybe. Yeah, I know he was he was he was, he was vibing on. It. Yeah, awesome. I, and I I love this cat to death. It's insane. Um, I thought I would get a lot more time with him, but when we got him, it was he was. Pretty old already. Apparently, he was. Ban- <laughs> I'd say banned. He was banned. He was chipped in 2008, and then his owner died and dumped him. So, um, wh- whoever got it dumped him. So, uh, gotcha. so that's how I ended up with him. So, um, yeah. One thing um, I was re- I recommend to people um, stuck at home um, is Curiosity Stream. It's this um, streaming service. It's twenty dollars for the year, and it's just a whole diversity of documentaries on there and of all different types you know but uh, I've been really enjoying like one about sperm whales and one's about dolphins in New Zealand and and there's one about hummingbirds David Attenborough so you know there's just plenty of stuff to keep you busy on that I think it's worth every penny nice have, does, have you seen the sperm whale documentary yeah it's amazing do they talk about giant squid no they talk about they uh, how they defeat on them uh, a bit, but uh, they um, mostly talk about their family groups and their uh, behavior, you know, which is amazing. I yeah. mean, and they're like apparently like unbelievably affectionate. Wow. They're like often, you know, they, they cuddle essentially and, and constantly touching each other. They're like, yeah, it's really strange. I mean, not strange. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's not to anthropomorphize, but I'm an affectionate person. Right. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. I like yeah. it. When, so it's a uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's amazing. Uh, I highly recommend it. Now, my recollection is that sperm whales. I don't know if they talk about this. You know, everyone kind of laughs at the name, um, or is at least curious about it. But I believe it. They are named for this huge sort of cavernous. I don't know if it's an organ or, but this in in their head. That like you know how sperm whales have this enormous head, like you know, little tiny yeah. eye. It's like half half the whole animal is the head, and I, if I remember right, they have this thing called the organ of spermaceti, which is like, which represents like most of the head of this thing. And I think they're they think it probably last I heard it has something to do with you know helping them regulate um, oxygen when they get down to like extreme depths because um, they do dive really really deep. I know. But I believe that's how they ended up with the name sperm whale. Uh, yeah, from the spermaceti. Yeah. 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 But yeah, the, you know, the old, you know, squid and the whale thing is pretty legit. And uh, I, I, I may have told you I actually got to see a, uh, a giant squid once, um, which is, you know, up until a few years ago would have been almost unthinkable. Yeah. Um, but I was at uh, the Auckland Islands of New Zealand. And we went up to this co- this cliff, this colony, and there was uh, nesting light-mantled sooty albatrosses, which are, like, one of the most beautiful birds in the world. Like, they're sort of like milk chocolate slivers of birds that have, like, you know, eight-foot wingspans, and they do these synchronized flights for during courtship. It's They're just exquisitely beautiful. And so we were checking that out, and someone was like, what, is that like a big octopus down there? And it was this... It was a it was a dead giant squid, 
uh, and it was and it, it had gotten pushed inshore, and it was getting roiled around at the base of this cliff by the surf. And and we could, you know, I, we took some pictures of it. It was like it was about a thirty foot long squid. Wow. Incredible, just like, you know, it was a shame to see it dead. But of course, I never would have seen it any other way, right? Because um, they exist at such depths. But yeah, sperm whales are fascinating. I, I'd like to check that documentary out. That sounds like a big good one. I have a a friend who thinks she has COVID right now, um, and we've been playing. I want for the travel. Uh, podcast um, as far as network, I want her to be a regular contributor, if not like a co-host. But we have we have a link up due to various things. But one of the things we want to talk about is she actually in Honduras did this like submersible to go pretty deep, and she got to see wow. the Dumbo octopus down there. You know, like the oh my gosh, yeah. I can't even imagine going in a one of those submersibles. That sounds like. I feel like there's too many scary movies that have been built around that premise, but uh, but that experience alone would be crazy. Much less to see Dumbo octopus. Yeah, so I can't wait to. Hopefully, when she's feeling better, we can get that story from her. Yeah, man. Uh, we're 37 minutes in, and we still haven't talked about the World Series of Birding, which I know you want to talk about. Yes, yeah, dude. I am excited. I know you who have been a long time participant. I think this will be like my. I don't know eighth or tenth time participating in the world series of birding which is like an awesome name right the world series of birding it's like incredible you know just sounds preposterous but it's pretty awesome event first one uh ever was in 1984 always takes place at cape may uh well it's focused around cape may usually confined to the state of new jersey i think the the idea is to see as many see or hear as many species of birds as you can and in a 24-hour period and it's almost always the second saturday in may and uh and which is kind of peak for spring migration here and uh yeah i mean it's just it's it's an event with a lot of history it's a ton of fun and they raise a lot of money for conservation basically everybody every team has their own cause that they're raising funds for I'm joining the Spring Swift Watch uh, team, which is headed up by Tom Reed. And this year we've got participation from all over the East Coast, basically. Because of this COVID-19 situation, they're they're like, hey, you know, do this, do it safe. We're not going to have everyone come into Jersey for it. You know, keep within 10 miles of your home, social distance, put all your birds together. Let's see if we can raise some money. And we're raising money for the spring watch there at Cape May, where they census birds. Uh, and Tom Reed is is the is the head of that project. And um, so yeah, we got we got Jen Brumfield in Cleveland, got Doug Gotchfeld in uh, New York, um, got Nick Bonomo in Connecticut, uh, Daniel Irons in in Maryland, uh, Barb Bassett down there in Cape May. Uh, so yeah, we got a we got like I don't know. I think we got about 15 different people sprinkled up and down the East Coast, from Florida to Maine and and west to Ohio, uh, to Cleveland. And uh, so, yeah, if you if you get a chance, check us out on the World Series of Birding website, um, where it's it happens this Saturday, and uh, we'll be taking donations to provide funding for the Springs um, Swift Watch and. Uh, 
and try to raise money so that they can basically monitor these birds so we have some sense of the status of birds and their abundance and and what what might be declining what might be increasing um that those you know cape may is is sort of mecca for bird migration in north america so it's an important place to to do these censuses to give us a sense of you know some baseline data to work with in terms of these bird populations um so yeah it'll be fun i'll be working here in philly uh liam hart and i are doing it here in philly and uh you know we're gonna we're gonna see see if we can do some damage um and uh so you know, how, wait so you're part of the, this group but you're can't you're not all getting together we're all yeah so we're all basically birding independently around our home areas within 10 miles of our home area so for me that pretty much gives me the whole city of philadelphia to work with um you know for 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 tom down in cape may um you know he's he's got a pretty pretty you know that gives them all cape island and a little bit more um you know jen in cleveland she'll have the cleveland waterfront and 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 uh a good amount of space to work with there uh so yeah and what we'll do is we'll you know this undoubtedly it'll be the you know the, i think the best total ever for a world series of birding that took place exclusively in new jersey was like 231 maybe it was like no it was a low 230s 230 species um so it'll be interesting to see what we get you know we should do really well you know with teams you know scattered all over the east part of the u.s um but yeah i mean this will be a different kind of year obviously it's very different from past years just because the whole situation you know um my team is I think we're not participating this year. Um, we are a bike team. And since you can't bird together, it's just kind of, um, yeah, it doesn't work as well for you guys. No. And we could be by ourselves, but it's kind of the whole fun is being together. And so, yeah, it's just, and you know, not all of us live. Yeah. I mean, to, I don't know how we would do it because you have to be apart from each other. It doesn't seem like it would make sense. And I know that, you know, we need money for bird conservation and projects, um, research projects, like, especially now, but it did feel kind of strange to try to raise money, you know, for um, um, something while this is happening. Um, I'm not putting, you know, saying about anybody just, it was a creeping up on me, all the problems, all the things to go through. You know, I couldn't really wrap my head around it. And so I think we're ultimately not going to do it, um, which is a shame because, you know, it's a lot of fun. But yeah, well, I think you guys have done it so many years in a row. And this is actually, I think this model works for some people and it just doesn't work for other people. You know, the I haven't, I think the last time I participated was maybe four years ago. And, you know, the, uh, that model doesn't appeal to me as much um, as this one, you know? So th- I heard about this. I was like, yeah, I'll do that this year. You know, I was, I'm pretty stoked about it. Um, but I think, you know, for other people, it's just like, all right, well, this, this is not what I signed on for. I'll wait till next year. And I think either, you know, both are valid and uh, it is a tough time to do any kind of fundraising for anything. Uh, all these conservation organizations, and research organizations, you know, that are, that are, uh, related to ornithology are suffering. 
I was talking to folks at National Audubon, you know, and they're the they're the biggest one in the country and arguably the big, you know, the biggest in the world. Um, and they, uh, you know, they're struggling, um, right now. Every, everybody that's been hit by the, I think, you know, our expectations are tempered. We'll take whatever anybody can give us, but we understand that it's, you know, some people can give and other people, this is not a time they're going to be able to contribute. So, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun. We'll do our best. And, uh, and it's, you know, for me, it's something to take my mind off of uh, some of the other stuff that's not not as fun right now. Yes, um, absolutely. I love the World Series of Birding. Um, I'm kind of I, I plan to keep doing it indefinitely, more or less. Uh, I'll see what next year looks like when I have a nine month old. Yeah, um, but that could be. Different. Yeah, my thing is. I, I hope that they are more flat. We'll think outside the box a little bit for next year, um, considering what happened this year. Because with the bike team, it's I love scouting um, up in Bell Plain State Forest and camping, and yeah, it was really fun. And I liked um, one thing I like about the World Series of Birding is that there's different ways to be a good birder. Um, generally for the world series of birding, you want, you do want someone, um, such as yourself. That's like incredibly good with quick. I bird, I bird ID both by sight and sound. And that's, you obviously want a lot of that kind of talent in your, in your group. Um, but on top of that, knowing where the birds are, right. Um, where to find them in the first place is extremely important info. Uh, knowing how to put together a good route, you know, th- these are all like important things. So you can contribute to a team in different ways. Like you could, you, you know, you could be the logistics person. You could be the, uh, um, you could plan the route and you could figure out what spots you're going, you know? So I liked it when, when, uh, and you could, you know, before it was kind of like, well, should you concentrate on, on a smaller area and, and get every bird there? Or should you cover more ground and just hit spot, hit a bunch more spots and just keep moving? And um, you know, if you if you concentrate on Cape Island, um, it's all about migrants. But if you start farther north, you get some the breeders and there's different ways to do it. But it seemed like in the last few years, um, clearly the model was to basically stay on Cape Island, get everything there, and then just go off a little bit to get a couple things you can't get on the island. And that seemed to be the way to be competitive for a bike team. And it was, it's not fun for me. I don't want to be, I want to, I want, you know, like the, not Cape in Cape May. It's like on Cape Island, you basically just, you bike to a spot, put your bike down and walk around. Um, right. And yeah, sure. You can get stuff in between, you know, Seagrove Avenue and biking up through the, um, farm area yeah you can get a, a fair amount of stuff um but generally you're going you're going to higby's and you're walking around you're going to the state park you're walking around and i um i really liked covering a lot, a lot of ground and birding as you're biking i love that and and yeah so that it's changing and and there's teams that live on the island and they have an inherent home field advantage and oh yeah so and in in and some of the 
folks, you know, actually work for the organization, you know, the Cape May Board Observatory in New Jersey, um, Audubon, you know, and I, so I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there. Um, it's, and um, so what I've been asking them to do for years now is there's a car category where it's um, a limited geographic area where you can pick a county and there's a par system. And I've been saying, could you right. please do that for bikes for, for, for the, you know, the bike category, because the way it is now, it's like, okay, is the carbon footprint cup and you're supposed to, um, it's about limiting your carbon footprint. But if, if up, in, if you don't live, you know, there's for people who don't know, Cape May's phenomenal in the fall is unbelievable migration spectacle, but it's still a remarkable it's one of the most remarkable small areas in the world for birds any time of the year. And in spring, it's, oh, yeah. it's super good. And you get, you know, you still get, you do get some birds, you know, a fair amount of birds migrating North and it's sort of, you know, across the Bay to hit it. So it does work well that way as well. Uh, a surprising diversity of habitats in a really small area. And, and, and that's great. Um, but you know, when you have a home field advantage, it, it is to the point where like you're, you're, to be competitive, you got to focus on Cape Island, which means that you got to like scout Cape Island. And if you don't live in Cape May, it means you got to come down, you know, drive down and then find a place to, to stay and then bike around the scout or drive around the scout. And it kind of defeats the purpose, you know, um, if you got to drive yeah. really far. Um, so I would like them to have a limited geographic area for bikes. So that way, theoretically, we could bike across the bridge into Camden County. Um, Right. And yeah. it would be in no, and you, no one it negates the whole home field advantage that anybody has. So I, I would love to, to see that. You know, this year we were talking about doing Sandy Hook. I thought that'd be really fun. Um, that would be fun. Just to like try something different because I'm tired of I'm, I, I'm tired of biking around Cape Island. You know, I want to. Yeah, it's it's all flat. It's you know, you, you there's really no opportunity to get off road. You know, you you park and walk while. Um, off paver while well, like before, you know, we could bike through all these, you know, these dirt roads up in, up in Bell Plain in the air, around there, and you know, um, bike around Heiserville. It's really fun. So I really hope that they, uh, uh, they're op- more open minded um, about the categories for bikes moving forward. It would be uh, um, really, I think, really good and, and, and make it, you know, more competitive. Um, have a bigger yeah. field because right is really is for the last few years it's really been like. Um, I think last year is different. I forget. Um, but the years before it was basically been like, there's three teams that all rotate for first, second, or third, you know, and my team is only coming first and second ever. So like, I think for other bike teams, they're kind of like, well, I'm not one of these three teams. So, so now, now I think, uh, I think, you know, it would encourage more participation in, in this category. So, but you know, no matter what, I, I love the, the event. I love the people who organize it. I love the causes that it supports. So, you know, ultimately it's a really positive thing. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, I think with not just with the World Series of Birding, but with, you know, there's similar events around the country and around the world. And I think one of the first questions you get from people that are not serious birders are like, well, how do you, you know, who's policing this? Who's the referee? And, you know, one of the great things about birding 
and is that it's basically all the honor system. You know, we all, you, you know, and, and, and it's kind of self-policing because people know more or less what other people's skills are and they know what's likely. And, you know, you know, they say your, your, your reputation is like your virginity. You only lose it once, you know? Um, so, you know, birders tend to be pretty careful about what they report and, and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of currency in in lying or making up stuff. But that is a little different in these these events. And I do think that I've decided that when I participate in them, I'm not really doing it to win. I'm, I, as you say, the scouting is the mo- most rewarding part. Personally, it's it's extended time spent in beautiful places, seeing awesome birds, and if I have found that when I focus on actually trying to win in terms of getting the most species, I always end up frustrated because of a variety of factors. But you you touched on a few of them, um, so I think that I, I think that two things. I think the participants need to start thinking about what it is that they enjoy and make sure that they keep that. And the and the people running these events need to think about how how it is that they can, you know, make the most number of people enjoy it and, and have it be a productive event. Um, overall, the World Series of Birding was really the first one like this, and they've been doing it since 1984. And Roger Torrey Peterson was on the first one, and Pete Dunn, the, the guru of, of birding, and who really kind of popularized it down at Cape May in, in recent decades. Uh, you know, he's the one that kicked this whole thing off. And uh, it is an incredibly... It's a great event, um, but all these birding events, I think, could use a little, um, you know, it, that nothing nothing gold can stay, as Robert Frost said, right? Like the everything needs to adjust and and change as everything else around us changes. So I think you're right that you know this event's been going on close to forty years now. They, it might be time to do some adjustments, and I think this COVID situation. I think they will come back to it fresh and think, okay, how do we want to do this going forward? Do we want to keep it the same way or do we want to change some stuff? And I bet they do change some stuff. I would like to see them um, add the ability to participate um, anywhere in the world on it. Yeah. You know, um, because it's it's really, it's the World Series of birding and there's no reason, there's already a bunch of categories, so why couldn't you, you know, why couldn't you open it up to people and you, they wouldn't yeah. get, you know, there'd be a, um, a prize, you know, the original trophies could be for New Jersey. Um, but add a couple more, you know, um, for the world, you know, like, and that could, that could be cool, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I guess there's kind of that, the, the Cornell's global big day is, uh, is pretty similar to that, um, that concept. Um, but it would be interesting to to see. Yeah, what's up with the? I didn't learn. learn um, I didn't realize. So they have a global big day. Is it the same weekend? When, um, usually, it's it's usually it's whatever day is International Migratory Bird Day, which typically does happen to be the same day the World Series of Birding is going on. Um, and yeah, now you know there's there's big competition between countries like Colombia and Peru to try to get the most most species Colombia a few years ago you know Colombia has the most species of birds of any country in the world close to 2000 species 
And uh, a few years ago, they they someone said, "Hey, look, you know, there's this global big day, you know, trying to, where everyone tries to see as many species as they can in a 24 hour period. We got more bird species than anybody else in the world, and yet we we don't, we never win this thing." And uh, and now I think they've won it like three of the last four years or something like that. Them and Peru go head to head. And uh, yeah, because Peru's only a few behind, right? Yeah, Peru is 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 big. Also, I don't remember what their and list for is. For a while, Peru used to be number one. That's until, right. And then I think people, as Colombia has been more accessible, people have you know put it together. Although I hear that eventually someone's gonna people are gonna start splitting all the interfluves. All the species in the inner flubes in the Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, someone's going to essentially, you know, Colombia and Brazil, uh, Colombia and Peru, um, the tropical Andes are the bird, the bird diversity, biodiversity hotspot of the world. Right. And essentially it's island biogeography. These, the, the Andes separate valleys. So the birds in the valleys are unique from each other. The birds in different mountain ranges are, are unique, and as you go up a mountain, the 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 vegetation changes with altitude, and so do the birds. So it's this incredible um, um, speciation events that's happened to create that. So that you know, and the biggest countries in tropical Andes are Colombia and Peru, uh, hence they have the most species. Ecuador's up there, so is Venezuela. Although uh, Venezuela doesn't have as much as the Andes, uh, Bolivia as well, but. So in the world, it's it's Colombia, uh, Peru, and then Brazil, and but if you think about island biogeography and you think about it, in ter- that the um, the Amazon is almost a whole bunch of islands. It's to a small an ant pit isn't going to fly across the um, the um, the Andes. I mean the Amazon or Amazon tributary, right? So they're going to. I think they're starting to look at the the areas in between these big rivers, right? Um, and because if you, you know, you f- go far enough up the river, it becomes like, like Sahado or like the, like these mountains that are, aren't, you know, the head, they're not the same habitat. So these birds are truly isolated. So I think when they, when, when they finally do all the splits in Brazil, Brazil might actually take the, the number one spot. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, Colombia has quite a good chunk of Amazon I think it'll be hard to take Colombia down, but you never know. Brazil is so massive. Uh, but do you know, Tony, which country? So the, for the global big day, you've got basically all the birders in the country working together to try to get the biggest total. But in terms of like a World Series of birding, like team of four or five, do you know which country has the highest single day bird list ever? I know at one point it was Kenya. But then I think people yeah. in in uh, Ecuador beat him, right? Is that? Yeah. So it was it was Kenya, like from like I want to say it was the eighties, and it was Terry Stevenson and Will Russell and a hand a couple other guys, um, and and they actually used a plane to to uh, cover some ground. And yeah, I think they set a record. It was in the high three hundreds, and then just like maybe I want to say like seven eight years ago. A team of guys, I think it was including Dan Lane um, and some others in Peru, sit and broke that record. And then, and I think they barely got over 400, if I remember right. I might have these numbers slightly off. And then, like a year or two years after that, a team in Ecuador, including uh, Dushan Brinkhuizen, 
Mitch Leisinger, Thomas Simola, they they had over 440 birds, and they broke the other record by like I think it was 40 species. Wow! Um, and in like just, just like a year and a half later, in Ecuador, and and the funny thing was that like they did a dry run, they did a scouting of that big day, like three or four days before they did their record setting big day. And on the dry run, they had like 30 species they did not have on their record-breaking big day. <laughs> wow. Wait, so did they get more? Even on, bigger. Did they get more or they just – there was 30 that they didn't get that day. So theoretically um, – Yeah, they could have – like I think they got 440 and they could have had like even 470 or 480 if things had gone right. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of diversity there is there in Ecuador. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, Ecuador, you know, would be number one if it was, if it, if um, Peru didn't take a third of its territory in a war. <laughs> yeah, and it, and well, and also now, Colombia's least explored part, prob- well, one of its least explored regions until recently, was its border uh, forests with Ecuador, and basically, there's all this stuff that you know, is, is found in Ecuador that barely spills over the border into Colombia. So <coughs> that's how Colombia is adding a lot of species mm-hmm. to their national list. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Colombia has a uh, Caribbean coast, Pacific coast, a good part of the Andes, yeah, they, the Llanos and the Amazon and the, yeah, cho- the Choco. Yeah. 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 They've got Choco. The, the main thing that Colombia has that's different is that they have the, the Andes run from, you know, Chile all the way up, barely into Venezuela. But as they go through Colombia, they they split into three different mountain ranges. So where most, you know, so they all of a sudden, you, you know, the diversity just tr- triples or more. Um, I'm exaggerating a bit, but just to get the point across, um, you know, you go from having sort of one big mountain range to having three kind of, you know, pretty big mountain ranges. Plus they have the Santa Marta mountain range, which is completely completely isolated from the Andes. So yeah, you were talking about sky islands, the Santa Marta mountain range. Some people would argue is the most biodiverse hotspot on earth. And that is a real, a real sky Island kind of situation there. That's awesome. I need to, I need to go. I've, I've uh, only spent 12 hours in the Bogota airport. <laughs> yeah, dude. No, we got to go, man. We got to go. I know dude. We have, it's funny uh, as good of friends as we are and doing this project and stuff together. We've, we actually don't bird together that much, <laughs> but yeah, be, it seems like we're we're better at bullshitting and drinking beer together than we are birding, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, we should remedy that. And definitely, an overseas trip would be great. You know. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, we're just over an hour. Um, is there anything else you want to cover before we uh, call an episode? No, man. Probably we should wrap it up. I reckon, huh? Yeah. Um, this is fun as always. I guess I'll talk to you. We'll do another one of these in two weeks or so. Um, yeah. Everybody, please uh, like and subscribe um, on your favorite podcasting um, platform of choice. Uh, give us a good review. Spread the word. Uh, everybody, stay safe and uh, you know, good birding. And uh, I'll pass it off to you, George, to take us home. Yeah. You know, thanks uh, everyone for listening. Uh, please do uh, check out the Spring Swift Watch team on the world series of birding uh website it's new jersey audubon event and like i say 
tough times, but anything you can contribute towards our team or another team, uh, they, there's dozens of teams that are trying to raise money for different causes. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great event. Look forward to being a part of it. Uh, but, yeah, thanks for listening. Look forward to talking to everybody uh, again in a couple weeks. Cheers, everybody.